Shalom again. This is Reverend John Ferret, and we are returning to Lesson 37. We're in Part 2, and we're discussing these very problematic numbers that we find in Exodus chapter 12 and then back in Numbers in the first two chapters, chapter 1 and chapter 2. 600,000 men left Egypt, which could translate into 2 million total, considering wives and children and old people and the mixed multitude. Numbers chapter 1 and chapter 2, we talk about an army of 603,550 men of military age. This is also historically, geographically very problematic. Are these numbers wrong? And if they are, why? What happened? Is there a solution to this? There is. There is. And hardly anybody pays attention to it because nobody pays attention to studying the Bible in its historical perspective. Well, we will. So let's return to Lesson 37, Part 2, where we access Dennis Prager's commentary in the continued discussion on the 600,000 men. Ready to, ready to go? <laughs> let's go. So in Dennis Prager's Rational Bible, Torah Commentary on Exodus, today, the number, or the Hebrew word, Eleph, Today definitely means a thousand. However, back in those days, we're talking about late Iron Age, 1446 BC, this term had an additional meaning such as clan or tribal unit or military unit. Therefore, 600 Eleph could mean 600 clans or 600 um, family units but definitely something less than a thousand. Dr. Boyd Sievers, the professor of Old Testament studies at Northwestern College, Minnesota, wrote, one may also understand the numbers literally, but differently than as usually translated. Though Eleph usually means a thousand or thousands, the word can also mean a part of a tribe, like perhaps translated clan, that was smaller than a tribe, but larger than an extended family. So, for example, Gideon protested to the divine messenger who had called him to leaderships, and he basically said, my clan, the Hebrew word there is Eleph, not my thousands, my clan, is the weakest of the tribe of Manasseh, or Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in the family. This is in Judges 6, verse 15. In a later event, Saul sought the fugitive David among all the clans of Judah. So in other words, the Hebrew Bible later uses Eleph to mean a thousand, but back then it meant a thousand, but also meant clan, family, or tribe. And the Torah even itself suggests that this may not be a literal number. For example, in Deuteronomy 7, verse 1, continuing with prayer's commentary, Deuteronomy 7, verse 1 states, When the Lord your God brings you to the land that you were about to enter and possess, and he dislodges many nations before you, the Hittites, 
the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations much larger than you. Prager goes on. Now, I think the meaning that the verse of that verse is each one of the seven nations is much larger than the Israelites. That would mean at least 14 million people, seven times two million, lived in Canaan. But that's unlikely. Today, more than 3,000 years later, there aren't even 14 mil million people living in the area of Canaan today. Furthermore, in the same chapter in Deuteronomy, Moses says, It is not because you are the most numerous of peoples that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you. Indeed, you're the smallest of peoples. A nation of some 2 million is not the smallest of people in 1446 B.C. Just to give you a perspective, if you actually go to Numbers chapter 1 and chapter 2, you're going to take a look that the army of Israel was 603,550 men. Now let's take a look at archaeology. The Babylonian Empire, which controlled the world basically in 1750 B.C., their army was 12,000, estimated that that was the largest. Right before the, or right after the Exodus, no, right before the Exodus, Thutmosis III, the pharaoh of Egypt, whose son was Amenhotep II, Amenhotep II is what, who I claim is the pharaoh of the Exodus, Thutmosis III about 1500 BC, attacked Megiddo with a force of 20,000. His army was 20,000 men. Later on, Ramses the Great, in 1250 BC, his army was estimated at 100,000. During the time of David, the estimates are that the army of Judah was 50,000 men. I didn't say the army of Israel, I said the army of Judah. Later on, we know about the Assyrians, Sennacherib. If you recall, he was attacking Jerusalem. Hezekiah and, uh, and Isaiah went to the temple of the Lord and prayed. And if you remember, Sennacherib laid siege to Jerusalem and 180,000 men were killed. It's estimated that the Assyrian Empire, their army was 200,000. And then we get to Xerxes, the time of Esther. The time of Xerxes, his army, which controlled the world, was a half a million men. That's it. And Israel is going to have 603,550 men, the biggest army in the world. The first time in history that any group, any nation, had an army that exceeded 600,000 men was the Sui dynasty, in 600 AD, and its army was 650,000 men. So, how, I mean, it's unrealistic to look at this. Now, we go to Numbers chapter 1 and chapter 2. You really have to ask yourself, can it be? That indeed Israel had the largest army on the face of the earth? It would make no sense. From another 
historical report, I have a very interesting chart. The scholar said, let's take a look at the numbers as reported in Numbers chapter 1 and chapter 2. So Reuben had uh, the number that's reported in your Bible, 46,500, Simeon 59,300, Gad 45,650, Judah 74,600, etc. Now when you add that up, you come up with 603,550. However, what this scholar suggested is we don't have the original writing of Moses. We have a copy of 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 a copy. And as we get later and later and later into the future, the word elef actually begins just to mean a thousand or thousands. It loses its other meaning in terms of daily use. So you're talking about the Middle Ages. Elif means a thousand. It does not mean clan or military unit anymore. But it did then. So if you actually look at the numbers this way. So Reuben, it's reported in our Bibles that there were 46,500 men of military age. But what if you said that it was 46 military units for a total of 500 men. Simeon, 59,300. No, no, no. With the way that it can be translated, an alternative real translation then, it'd be 59 military units, a total of 300 men. Gad would be 45 military units, regiments, platoons, whatever you want to call them, of 650 total men. So when you get down to the end, you come up with the fact that there are 598 platoons, 598 regiments, totaling 5,550 men. Now this is beginning to make more sense. Because now you have an army that makes sense, it's a little bit more realistic. Suppose out of the 5,550 men, 4,000 were married. Now you're up to 9,550. Suppose they had four kids each on an average. That brings it up to another 16,000 if you say there's 4,000 of them married. So now they have at least 25,550 people that left Egypt. At least... Perhaps it's 30,000, 40,000 with old people and the mixed multitude and so on. Now, to me, that makes a heck of a lot of sense. It fits the ancient world in 1446 BC. However, the number does not take away from the miraculous events like the crossing of the sea. crossing of the sea was God actually split the sea and held it open overnight? For me, it helps me to grasp the truth of God's word.
to me, it makes the Torah more realistic, more down to earth. Something, not like a Walt Disney movie. God is dealing with the reality, a God of real history. So I know that there are many who will disagree. And I would call your view the traditional view. We can't prove your view if you believe it was 600,000 men. Neither can we prove mine. We're going to have to wait. So I guess we will. But I just wanted to bring this up because there is a realistic way to answer the objection that there were not 600,000 men, but 600 units. We came up with 598 in the book of Numbers. And it agrees. So we read in verse 38 that there was a mixed multitude that also went up with Israel. Vegam Arev Ravala. Dr. John Kareed, in his Torah commentary, again, like he's a brilliant Christian scholar, both archaeologist and Egyptologist, he talks about the Hebrew word Arev. Strong's number is 6154. And it means a mixture. And it's often used uh, definitely in the Bible for people who are non-Israeli. So, for instance, if we go to Jeremiah 25.20, we read from the New American Stad, and all the foreign people, all the foreign people, and all the kings of the land of Uz, and all the kings of the land of the Philistines, even Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, the remnant of Ashdod. So it says the foreign people, that's Arev, the mixture, okay, you can find this also in Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 37, and Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 3. Arev, foreigners, non-Jews. Who might these guys be? They're non-Jews. What about this? I'm in Exodus 9, verses 20 to 21. We read, the one among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. But he who paid no regard to the word of the Lord left the servants and his livestock in the field. That was the plague of hail. Could it be because they feared the Lord? These were part of the group that came with Israel. What about some of the officials of the high court? The omissions, we, the, the magicians. Remember Exodus 8, verse 19. This is the finger of God. Could it be that even magicians and priests and some of the administrators of the high court of Pharaoh turned away from their gods and turned to Yahweh? And everyday folk, look what they saw. We read about the fact that they found, the Hebrews found great favor with the everyday folk. They even gave them gold and silver. Get out of here. But maybe many wanted to go with me and said, but wait a minute, their God has to be true. Look, they, they, we, our gods don't even have any power anymore. And of course, foreign slaves. 
foreign slaves who were in slavery along with the Hebrews. This could very well be the makeup. The Torah suggests or implies that. The culture implies that. So the Hebrews, 25, 30, 40,000, 50,000, along with this group, which are going to be the non-Israelites, they left with large herds and flocks. This is critical. This is very important. Later on in the series, we'll be asking, where's Mount Sinai? Now, they're traveling with large herds and flocks. And this is going to help us understand the speed of their travel. So when we take a look at Mount Sinai, some say there's a traditional site in southern Sinai at St. Catharines, Jabal Musa. Or there's some that claim their theory that it's in southern, southern western, the southern part of western Saudi Arabia on the Gulf of Aqaba, not just from the coast at Jabal Alwaz. But does the scripture give us facts and clues? Oh, <laughs> you bet. But let's wait till we get to Sinai. Now the Hebrews left on Nisan 15. They arrived in the third month on the selfsame day. Selfsame day. That could mean the third month on the third day. 48 days from Sukkot until Sinai. God tells them, Prepare today and tomorrow for on the third day, the fifth day, the fifth day of the month. He gives the Ten Commandments. So those are just a few facts. There's more. Because we know there was a 48-day journey to get from Sukkot to Mount Sinai. We also read in verses 40 through 41 that it took 430 years to the day that the sons of Israel, who are the sons of Israel? Who are they? Jacob, he was given another name, his sons. Now, I have already addressed this number, 430 years. It is exact, it is precise, and it is based on real archaeology. We've addressed this in the lessons in Exodus, Lesson 5, Parts 1 and 2, also in the Genesis series in Lesson 27. I've linked those to you here in this lesson, Lesson 37. If you go into the session description, you'll find the links to those lessons. Also, you can go to our YouTube channel. Just go to the website www.lightamenorah.org you'll see the YouTube icon on the right side click on it when you get there you'll be able to see above uh, the list of about maybe five videos that you'll see right above that you'll see playlists under playlists click on it and that will give you the different groupings of some of these lessons and one of them talks about biblical dating and you can get there to Exodus 5 Parts 1 and 2 and Genesis Lesson 27. So all of this, and also when you're listening to these lessons, if you're listening on Podbean or if you're listening on, um, oh, I don't know, uh, listening on any other uh, 
um, podcast app, you should be able to see some button someplace where you could see more or show more or, or click on it to expand and you can see the introduction. In there will be many more links that I have provided to videos, to more resources, to verify the dating of 1446 BC. So we finally come to the last verses of Exodus chapter 12. Starting in verse 42, we read, It is a night to be observed for the Lord, for having brought them out from the land of Egypt. This night is for the Lord to be observed by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it. But every man's slave purchased with money, after you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. A sojourner or a hired servant shall not eat of it. It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. All the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. But if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near to celebrate it. And he shall be like a native of the land, but no circumcised person may eat of it. The same law shall apply to the native as to the stranger who sojourns among you. Then all the sons of Israel did so, and they did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that same day the Lord brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. There's a fascinating little verse here that I want to make a comment on. And that is in verse 48. And that is a stranger, a foreigner, a non-Israelite. If they're sojourning with them and they want to celebrate the Passover, if they become circumcised, they will be like a native of the land. They'll be a Jew. They'll be a Hebrew. This is one of those verses where this is the only bloodline of a people where you can become one of them. Now the rabbis have added other parts of this, but it's the circumcision of a foreigner, somebody that's non-Israelite, that can they actually become a native of the land. This is what the Torah says. There's nothing people can do that if you are uh, Chinese that you can become Polish. You can't do it. Or if you're Polish and you want to convert to becoming Hawaiian, you cannot do it. But here is God's people and God has opened the door for a non-Hebrew to become one of them. Uh, it's just quite amazing. Now, no foreigner may eat of the roasted lamb. So sorry, Christians. If you were with them, you couldn't participate in the meal. You can't eat the lamb. So none of those mixed multitude, the people of the mixed multitude, could eat the lamb. But it seems like they could participate in the meal. 
that doesn't seem to be a problem, but it really seems that the Torah is saying, don't eat the lamb. It's only for true Hebrews or those non-Israelites who have circumcised themselves, who hold to the fact that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the only God, the true God. And holds true for us today. There's no temple, there's no sacrifices. It's just a, it's a celebration to remember. And it's also supposed to be for the family. Today, churches have their Seder. And they're, they're not even doing it according to the Torah. It's supposed to be done in the family. Once I discovered this, I do a special Seder. It's the day before the Jewish Seder. I do it the night before, the same night as Jesus did his Passover meal of the Messiah. We know it as the Last Supper. I celebrate it at this time. A time to celebrate and remember the Lamb of God. A time to celebrate and remember the great redemption of the new covenant at the mountain of God in Jerusalem. But I also remember the Jewish people, the Hebrews. I remember their Passover and the great deliverance that God provided for his people to come out of the bondage of slavery. And because of that exodus, and because of God's redemption plan today, or in that day, especially in Jesus' day, Jew and Gentile, they will remember the Passover, the Messianic Passover, and the deliverance of all from the slavery of sin. You cannot have the Passover meal of the Messiah without the Passover meal of the Hebrews. You cannot have that without the first. God did this. He associated the sacrifice of the Lamb of God to the Passover Lamb. Now, I call it the mirror of Passover. And again, I ask you to check out the video, so critical to our understanding of all of this, called the mirror of Passover. And again, if you go to the YouTube channel, and you are at the YouTube channel, and you search for all the videos, you will find the one called The Mirror of Passover. And don't forget all the links in the session description. So we've dealt with some amazing issues here. We've added to our understanding of the night of the full moon when the Lord himself came and brought destruction on all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And we talk about Khansu, the moon god. All his glory that night. It's as if the Torah is saying, God destroyed him. Destroyed all the gods of Egypt. And then, 600,000 men? Seems too big. We looked at a realistic alternative a realistic alternative to the amount of people that perhaps left Egypt. Now, we can't determine it exactly, 
We'll have to wait. Wait for that day when Messiah returns. Perhaps Moses will have a class. <laughs> and we'll be able to ask him what the number was. So until then, may the Lord bless you. And may the fire of the Holy Spirit burn in you. As again you feed on his word. And I will see you again in Lesson 38. Till then, Shalom.